0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard
1: got speed, john glenn
0: roger zero g and i feel fine
1: okay, my out. okay
0: i'm out how does it feel for the united states to be
1: the new record holder at last huh when that baby light
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 303 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., Part 3.
1: Of course, I was delighted when I was assigned uh, command of the first Gemini flight with uh, Tom Stafford as my co-pilot.
0: After the Mercury Atlas 10 mission was canceled, Shepard was designated as the commander of the first crew Gemini mission, with Thomas P. Stafford chosen as his pilot. Everything seemed to be going well. Shepard would again be first in the new Gemini program, but in late 1963, Shepard began to experience episodes of extreme dizziness and nausea, accompanied by loud clanging noise in his left ear. He tried to keep it a secret, fearing that he would lose his flight status, but was aware that if an episode occurred in the air or in space, it could be fatal.
1: And it was shortly after that that I developed a disorientation problem in my, in my ear, uh, and NASA grounded me, and I was grounded for almost six years. Didn't like it at all.
0: Following an episode during a lecture in Houston, Shepard was forced to confess his ailment to Deke Slayton, the Director of Flight Operations, and seek help from NASA doctors. The doctors diagnosed Meniere's disease, a condition in which fluid pressure builds up in the inner ear. The syndrome causes the semicircular canals and motion detectors to become extremely sensitive, resulting in disorientation, dizziness, and nausea. There was no known cure, but in about 20% of the cases, the condition went away by itself. The doctors prescribed diuretics in an attempt to drain the fluid from the ear. They also diagnosed glaucoma. An x-ray found a lump on his thyroid and on January 17, 1964, Surgeons at Herman Hospital made an incision on his throat and removed 20% of his thyroid. The condition caused Shepard to be removed from flight status. Grissom and John Young flew Gemini 3 instead.
1: Didn't like it at all, but the prediction was that this problem, which is called Meniere's syndrome, causes dizziness, nausea, lack of balance, and so on. In some cases, was correctable, and I said, "Well, of course, in my case, it is going to be correctable, obviously." And the NASA guy said, "Well, we like you, Shepard. Uh, you can be in charge of all the astronauts. You can't fly, obviously, but well, you can fly with somebody else." I, whenever I flew, I always had to have somebody in the back seat of the airplane. But so, uh, so I was sort of in administrative charge of of the astronaut group and their training and so on, and and. Uh, Send him down, pat him on the head, and watch him fly. That was that was a little tough.
0: In fact, Shepard would later say that being grounded was the worst thing that ever happened to him.
1: But obviously being grounded was the worst thing that has ever happened to me.
0: Shepard was next designated chief of the astronaut office in November 1963. This job seemed similar to the job Slayton was already doing, but there were some differences. Shepard was responsible for NASA astronaut training. This involved the development of appropriate training programs for all astronauts and the scheduling of training of individual astronauts for specific missions and roles. He provided and coordinated astronaut input into mission planning and the design of spacecraft and other equipment to be used by astronauts on space missions. He also was on the selection panel for the NASA Astronaut Group 5 in
1: 1966. I decided to fight this many years to stay with NASA and during the time period when I was grounded, uh, I could become very, very useful in the in the astronaut training business, uh, and I suppose that uh, we really had grown. If you consider the number of chaps that were involved in the simulators, for example, uh, in the uh, in the suiting procedures, taking care of the suits and so on, direct supporting facilities for the astronauts. There are really quite a number of people involved, so they decided to make it a separate division. Uh, Deke was the head of that division, and I was given the job specifically of uh, the care and feeding of these, of these astronauts, charge of their training, helping uh, Deke with crew assignments, that sort of thing. Was it Deke primarily that got you the job, or was it just the fact that you had all the qualifications? How did that work? Well, I think it was just a—it was just a matter of, of of saying what do we need. When uh, when I became grounded and in, uh, informed NASA that I was going to stay there, then we had we had two guys uh, that uh, really could have either one of us could have done the job. One little difference, I think perhaps, that I knew I was going to somehow something was going to happen soon with me. I was either going to get the ear fixed or I was gone with with Zeke, I think that uh, he more was more or less resigned at that stage to the heart murmur business, and the medics keep would keep giving him a bad time about that so. I think it was really that Deke probably was in more of a long-term commitment than in my particular case, so I think that's really why, really, over and on, what we established to, and you know, we just talked it over with with Kraft and uh, and Gilruth, and they sort of agreed that was a a good selection. So,
0: Slayton and Shepard got the reputation of running a tight ship with the astronauts, and This is when Shepard earned the nickname of the Icy Commander.
1: Well, of course, Deke and I were both mad because we were grounded. Uh, We'd both been training as astronauts. We knew where every skeleton was in the whole process. And we just wouldn't let those guys get away with anything. I mean, we knew what they had to do. We knew how they had to do it. And if they weren't doing it, then we would bring them in and tell them about it. Uh, maybe I was a little more forceful than I would have been normally because being grounded. I believe they called me the icy commander or some friendly term like that. But uh, steely-eyed. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, we yeah we knew we're, we knew we're all. Uh, all the skeletons were. And knowing that, in a very peculiar way, from a NASA point of view, perhaps it was for the betterment of the space program that you and Deke both were doing what you were doing at the time you were doing it. Do you ever think of that? Well, I think certainly uh, there was a need for coordination. There was a need for uh, representation at executive level. Uh, other other chaps could have done the job uh, perhaps equally as well, or perhaps even better, but uh, it seemed like it seemed like we turned out some pretty good crews
0: during this period. Shepard's secretary had several headshot photographs taken of him, posed with various expressions on his face. She would post these on the door to his private office with a sign which said: Mood of the day. Visitors could then look at the photo to decide whether it was a good time to talk to him or not. Shepard seemed to have a dual personality, one as Smiling Al and the other as the icy commander. While serving as the chief of the astronaut office, Shepard spent much of his time investing in banks, wildcatting, and real estate. He became part owner and vice president of Baytown National Bank and would spend hours on the phone in his NASA office overseeing it. He also bought a partnership in a ranch in Weatherford, Texas that raised horses and cattle. Then, in early 1967, Shepard had to deal with the tragedy of Apollo 1, a flight that he might have been assigned to if not for his illness.
1: Apollo 1 came as a real shock, no question about it. It came as a shock because it was unexpected. And I'll get into the reasons for it being unexpected a little bit later. But to lose a crew in a ground test, I mean, they're still sitting there on the ground. To lose a crew really woke everybody up, and that was important because all of us, every single one of us, and Deke and I discussed this, unfortunately, after the fact, but we were part of a group that had gone through Mercury, had gone through Gemini. Uh, Man, uh, we're leading, we're being Russians. Uh, You know, nothing can go wrong. Uh, and it, it led to a, a sense of false security. No question about it. I, Deke and I remember talking about it. Gus would come back and he had a had a complaint about this. He said, this is the worst spacecraft I've ever seen. And complained about that. And of course he was complaining to engineers as well as to Deke and to me. But Deke and I uh, insidiously became part of the problem because we said, Okay, Gus, go ahead and make a list of this stuff and we'll see that it's fixed by the time you fly. Not that we'll see that it's fixed before they stick you back in there for a test where you're using 100% oxygen. See, there was that sense of security, a sense of complacency that everyone had, including myself and including Deke. I think some people felt that sense of responsibility and neglect, bad decisions more than others, and were personally affected by it more than others. But I don't believe there are more than just a few hardheads that didn't feel in the long run that they were part of the problem. I don't think there's any question about the fact that the Apollo 1 fire did shape up the whole system, did make people realize that they had been too complacent, that they were overconfident, and it resulted, of course, in the total redesign of many of the parts of the spacecraft and I'm sure contributed to what was a very highly successful you know, we're still basic research, you're still putting people on the moon and you do it six times and you only He only missed once. I mean, that's incredible.
0: Of course, with his job as astronaut chief, Shepard had to deal with astronaut personality conflicts and jealousies. Shepard considered these as the worst part of his
1: job. Well, I was head of the astronaut office. That it was my responsibility, the care and feeding of a very enthusiastic, very intelligent, very dedicated, uh, motivated bunch of guys. Uh, and uh, there were jealousies in the ranks, people being jealous of so-and-so, particularly being chosen for flight or for backup position uh, or a support crew position. And uh, there were instances where fairly harsh discussions were were taken to sort of straighten things out. and said, hey, look, uh, Deke and I are running this program, and this is the way it's going to be run, and we're sorry, but eventually you'll be treated fairly. There were some that still feel they weren't, but small percentage, hopefully.
0: Finally, in 1968, things began to look up for Alan Shepard. Tom Stafford stopped by Shepard's office one day and told him that an otologist in Los Angeles had developed a cure for Meniere's disease. Shepard flew to Los Angeles where he met Dr. William F. House, House proposed to open Shepard's mastoid bone and make a tiny hole in the endolymphatic sac. A small tube was inserted to drain excess fluid. The surgery was conducted in early 1969 at St. Vincent's Hospital in Los Angeles, where Shepard checked in under the pseudonym of Victor Palos. The surgery was successful and Shepard was restored to full-flight status on May 7th, 1969.
1: When NASA finally said I could fly again, I went to Deke and said, we have not announced publicly the crew assignment for Apollo 13. I have a recommendation to make. (laughs) And I had picked two bright young guys One of them a Ph.D. and one of them a heck of a lot smarter than I was, uh, and made up a team to go to uh, for for an Apollo flight. And I said, I would like to recommend that I get Apollo 13 with Stu Russo as command module and Ed Mitchell as lunar pilot. He said, I don't know. Let's try it out. So we sent it to Washington.
0: Shepard and Slayton put Shepard down to command the next available moon mission, which was Apollo 13 in 1970. Under normal circumstances, this assignment would have gone to Gordo Cooper as the backup commander of Apollo 10. But Cooper was swept aside. A rookie, Stuart Rusa, was designated the command module pilot. At first, Shepard asked for Jim McDivitt as his lunar module pilot, But McDivitt, who had already commanded the Apollo 9 mission, balked at the prospect, arguing that Shepard did not have sufficient Apollo training to command a moon mission. Shepard's second choice was a rookie. Edgar Mitchell was designated the lunar module pilot.
1: Oh, we got all kinds of flack from the guys. the first place, I hadn't flown anything since 1961. Here it was ten years later, right? And the two guys with me had not flown before at all. So they called us the three rookies. I mean, we had to put up with that. This was an internal description, obviously. And then the fact that everybody said, well, you know, old men shouldn't be up there in the moon. And there was, not that there wasn't enough challenge to prove, prove the point uh, as it was, but, uh, but that was part of the makeup of, of, of all those guys. Uh, and still, you know, they, they're still a pretty competitive group.
0: When Slayton submitted the proposed crew assignments to NASA headquarters, George Miller turned them down on grounds that the crew was too
1: inexperienced. And uh, they said, no, no way. He said, now, wait a minute, now Shepard's going to be at least as smart as the rest of these guys, maybe a little smarter. And they said, well, we know that, but it's a real public relations problem. Here this guy has just gotten ungrounded and all of a sudden, boom, he gets premier flight assignment. So the discussion went on for several days and finally they said, all right, we'll make a deal. Well, let Shepard shepherd have Apollo 14. Give us another crew for Apollo 13.
0: Slayton asked Jim Lovell, who had been the backup commander for Apollo 11 and was slated to be commander of Apollo 14, if his crew would be willing to fly Apollo 13 instead. Lovell agreed to do so, and Shepard's inexperienced crew was assigned to Apollo 14. Of course, neither Shepard nor Lovell expected there would be much difference between Apollo 13 and Apollo 14. But Apollo 13 went terribly wrong. An oxygen tank explosion caused the moon landing to be aborted and nearly resulted in the loss of the crew
1: well of course the immediate thought was how do we get these guys back obviously right from the start it was the end of a of a landing mission no question about that but it was it was interesting to see the entire system the entire system being flushed out being made to to come back with any kind of a recommendation, and of course, Chris Kraft and Gene Kranz were the guys that held everybody together on this thing and said, "Look, we've got to find a way to bring these boys back. Failure is not an option." And as you well know, uh, the whole system was was vibrating uh, in any any corner of the manufacturing processes, the vendoring processes, uh, NASA's people, everybody was working toward a solution for this problem. And As it turned out, uh, it was more than one solution. I mean, there are several different areas of engineering had to be addressed and corrected. And I think that it's probably NASA's finest hour When you think about it, I think that certainly from a pilot's point of view, uh, it was just as an important event as stepping on the moon on Apollo 11.
0: Once again, Shepard was saved from catastrophe, this time by missing the Apollo 13 flight. Since Lovell traded away his opportunity to land on the moon by switching to the earlier Apollo 13 flight, it became a running joke between Shepard and Lovell. Every time they would bump into each other, Lovell would offer to give Shepard back the Apollo 13 mission. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Anish, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 303 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., Part 3. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 135 episodes are available on the Archive Podcast Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode. The Johnson Space Center Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley. Failure is not an option by Gene Krantz. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chakin, Flight by Chris Kraft. C-SPAN. The Academy of Achievement. Light This Candle by Neil Thompson. And Wikipedia. Well, Do you think it was right of Shepard to hide his symptoms when he had Meniere's disease? He wanted to fly so much, he didn't really care about the risk to himself or his vehicle or whoever else might be with him in a spacecraft or even the space program. To me, that doesn't seem right. There's also some question as to whether he was really healed from Meniere's disease, but he was checked over by NASA doctors, so I don't know. Regarding the pictures that his secretary would put up, depending upon his mood, now that was pretty funny, but Shepard must have had a sense of humor to put up with that, because it could be kind of rough some days, (laughs) you know, when you got your a frowny picture up there. I hope you noticed that Shepard was really fortunate to have not been assigned to Apollo 1. Recall that he was first in Mercury. He was going to be first in Gemini. And I believe, if not for his disease, he would have been on that Apollo 1 crew. Also, don't forget about Apollo 13. He swapped flights with Lovell because he wasn't trained enough on the Apollo. If I were Lovell, I think I would have. That would have been a hard pill to swallow to miss out on my opportunity to land on the moon. Of course, nobody knew that when they swapped, but he has had to live with that for a very long time. Okay, next week we will finish up Alan Shepard's biography. Okay, I've left a little time so we can read ten more of your favorite episodes. Now we're doing these in episode order and all 10 of these are on Apollo 12 episodes. So I will do the first five and Mrs. SRH is here once again to do the last five. Okay, I have Michael M. from Australia and he liked episode 237 which was Lunar Module Pilot Alan Bean, the artist. And uh, an excerpt says, I don't think anyone could have presented a more respectful, informative, and final tribute about Alan Bean as you did, and that's why it's my favorite podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. That's nice of you to say. Martin G. from Australia also liked episode 241 and 242, The Launch of Apollo 12, and he picked these because Pete Conrad's crews sounded like they were truly loving their work. And for the excellent explanation of John Aaron's legendary call, flight, try SCE to AUX. I even have a fridge magnet of the call on my locker at work. All right, James B. from Australia. Also liked episode 242, the launch, part two. And he says, after the lightning strike and the systems went down, Try SCE Talks. I think that is just great. So episode 242 gets his vote. And we have Herman A, also from Australia, and he liked episode 242, the launch. I suppose my favorite episode, not a fair ask by the way, is the Apollo 12 episode 242. When lightning hits the Saturn V. Wow, I have referred this episode to so many friends. It's a great example of how cool the Apollo program was and how this team were cutting edge all the way through to how they managed real-time situations. The Apollo 12 team are gun, and the team on the ground were too. All right, thank you, Herman. And this is Kent K. from Ohio. And he liked the same episode, 242. And he says, I especially enjoyed the in-depth discussion about the real-time run of the Apollo 12 command module flight recorder. All right, now we'll have Mrs. SRH read a few.
2: Ryan L. from Massachusetts wrote, I really enjoyed the Apollo 12 landing episode, numbers 245 and 246. They were obviously a very close crew, and to hear the joy in Pete Conrad's voice when he saw Surveyor Crater was absolutely great. Alan Bean calling out distance and saying things like, Plenty of gas, and he's got it made, is just a joy to listen to. Thanks, Ryan. Brett S. from Virginia said his favorite episode is number 246, Apollo 12, Pinpoint Landing, Part 2. The reasons are varied. The understanding of the scale of the work, which went into putting the men exactly in that spot when the lunar module pitched forward and Conrad seized the target. The sheer joy and excitement in their voices, something you don't often get in recordings of the astronauts. The professionalism to contain the joy and keep laser-focused on the task at hand and the genuine love and respect the two men obviously share for one another. You can hear this is two friends on a lark, which happens to be one of the greatest adventures in the history of man. With all that said, the main reason this will always be my favorite episode is more personal. When driving around town with my four-year-old son, I will often put on podcasts. He will occasionally hear something which sparks the inevitable, Why? from the back seat. It rarely leads to much but idle chatter. Then one day, he heard your voice mention the snowman. His ears immediately perked up, and I was pelted with questions to how a snowman could be on the moon. This led to a discussion of craters and how they formed, which turned into a trip to the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., where he saw the space shuttle Discovery. Now he's an absolute nut for anything related to rockets and astronomy and exploration. When he also learned there was once a lunar module and command module nicknamed Snoopy and Charlie Brown, also thanks to your podcast, he was hooked. He says the change in his piggy bank is to save up for space camp when he turns 11. Thanks for sharing that, Brett. Tom C. from Ireland said, My favorite episode is without a doubt, Episode 246, Apollo 12, Pinpoint Landing Part 2. Right down the middle of the road. You did an outstanding job on this episode giving fantastic coverage of the landing. I felt like I was riding along with Pete and Al right there in Intrepid. It was amazing. Thanks, Tom. Magnus B. really enjoyed number 246, Apollo 12, Moon Landing Part 2. Fantastic crew coordination while being friendly to each other. Thanks, Magnus. And Blair C. from New New Zealand chose episode 253, Apollo 12, Moonwalk 2, part 4. The reason why is because of the camaraderie between the crew. They sure sound like a bunch of fun guys. Thanks, Blair, for sharing.
0: All right, I want to thank everybody that sent in their favorite episode, and we certainly have enjoyed reading them. We have one more batch to read next week, and then we should be finished. All right, for those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue, nor do we have a government grant or a corporate endowment. We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate, as well as being entered into the weekly giveaways. All right, uh, this week we were a little low on support. We had two Donors and we certainly appreciate them very much. First, we had Baron Duda Moonshot from Australia donated at the Apollo level, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. And then we had Ben K from California sent in another donation this year and moved to the commercial level with rocket emoji. Thank you, donors. And we appreciate that. Sadly, we lost three Patreon donors when May changed to June. So, we are back down to 222 Patreon donors. It's been a tough week financially for the podcast. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 346, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 346 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week, we are giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Here's Mrs. SRH with the winner.
2: Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce the winner of the Space Rocket History logo magnet. I randomly selected Zachary Mashman. Zachary Mashman, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Apologies if I mispronounced your name.
0: Okay folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 304 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.